Okay, Habakkuk is the very prophet from whom Paul took his main text for the defense and confirmation of the gospel in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. And so I decided to take this verse. I thought of it when I woke up this morning. Habakkuk ends with this verse in 319. It says, Yahweh, my Lord, very rare address of God as both Yahweh and Adonai. It's kind of like a double Lord. Yahweh, my Lord, Adonai is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights, high places. Feet like those of a deer then are able to sure-footedly maneuver, run, walk on mountain ridges. My grandfather used to speak about the most monster, they call them monster bucks now, but the biggest deer that he ever saw were what he called ridge runners. They were big bucks in the region of Vermont, which I often chased and never shot. But these, we have been given feet like a deer, and we've been enabled by Yahweh, the Lord, our God, our Lord Jesus Christ, to walk on mountain heights recently. And by that I mean John's gospel, one of the heights, and the mountain heights in the word. I mean Revelation, especially chapters 21 and 22, where we're giving a stunning vista and horizon of all things being made new by the enthroned God. Galatians chapter 3, the advent of faithfulness with Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, 12 to 21, one of the mountain heights we've been running on, maneuvering on. And these are only, we're only able to do this because the Lord our God has given us feet like deer. And we've also recently discovered one of the mountain heights of the scriptures in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty to 28, where we learn that in Christ all will be made alive and that when the end comes, all of creation, comprised as it is then by Christ himself, will be handed over to the Father so that God may be all in all. That's a mountain height. And we're grateful that God has allowed us and permitted us by his pure irresistible and unconditional grace as an assembly to be able to run on these mountain heights and to walk on them sure-footedly and confidently. Most recently, we are climbing to the heights of Romans 11, which the height of which is verses 24 through 26, and then verse 32. God's great intention and his intention and his actions are one. His great intention to show mercy to all. I think the other thing on my mind was a friend of ours. Some of you knew him, Jim Jacobs. He used to be in our church. That's what's nagging at my mind. He used to be in our assembly years and years ago. One of, one of many who went from here on to Bible college, and sometimes they were scattered and dispersed throughout all the world. Sometimes they came back, like Patty couple of characters down there. And he has recently gone home to be with the Lord. 
So our sympathy is certainly extended to his family, his wife, and three children, and to all those who remember him fondly in our church. I think a few of our veterans certainly do remember Jim Jacobs. He taught also with me in our church. I think he taught a class on Greek when we were teaching for the Bible College, and I have fond remembrances of Jim. So another one who's graduated into the glorious presence of our Lord, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He knows what this means, walking on the heights. From these heights, we can see the horizon in which the event of the cross is seen in its full impact. The event of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the indescribably shameful death, of our Savior, yielding to the unspeakable glory of him, a glory that radiates through all of creation. It's only from these heights that we can see this horizon in which the extent of the impact of the incarnation, the instauration, and the resurrection of the eternal word made flesh is unveiled. And from these heights, we can also hear with John in Revelation 5, 13, the voice of all creation in a pean of praise to the triune God, to the creator and redeemer of all things. So I'm grateful that he has allowed us to have the legs and feet of a deer made to be sure-footed in high places on mountain ridges. And that's what we've been doing. And as I look back, I see that that's where we've been, really, since we've been here in the Alamo. We've been riding the high places. And we've been walking sure-footedly on certain peaks of the Word of God from which we are afforded a universal horizon. There is one other thing I was thinking of. If you read the Washington Times, Tony Sadar's article is going to be in there tomorrow. He's wincing. He has, he's been getting better and better. His articles are awesome. They glorify God subtly sometimes, but remarkably. Washington Times tomorrow. Look for Tony Sadar. Like the Passover, Sadar, only Sadar, S-A-D-A-R. Okay. See, I know things about people. Romans 11, then, is our latest height. And I want to briefly retrace where we've been in Romans 11, beginning with Paul's two quotes of whom he calls the very bold Isaiah. He takes on Isaiah's boldness in Romans. Isaiah is very bold on two fronts. First, he says, I was found by people not looking for me. Second, he says, all day long I've extended my hands to a defiant and disobedient people. He's talking on one hand of pagans. He's talking on the other hand of Israel. And Isaiah is very bold. It's very bold to say that people who didn't seek God found him. And Paul says in Romans fifteen fifteen at the end of this magnificent epistle, toward the end, he said, I have been very bold on some points as well. He reflects the very boldness of Isaiah. He quotes him twice then as we pick up 
in Romans chapter 10. And this shows, incidentally, Romans 10 flowing seamlessly into 11 shows that there has been a mountain climb that started in Romans 9.1 in this whole section, Romans 9 through 11. So 11 isn't just jumping to some conclusions or leaping to some conclusions without the presupposition of all the way up through Romans. And so Romans 9, when you hear verses like vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, those you don't leave them there. They're going towards somewhere. They're going somewhere. And we're going to the peak of the, another mountain. And God will give you dear feet to sure-footedly walk on these heights. And he will give you eyes that are enlightened to be able to see the horizon before you from this height. And so Romans 10, again, this shows that this is not disconnected. Romans 11 is not disconnected from Romans 10 or from Romans 9 or really from Romans 1 and following all the way through ultimately, but especially Romans 9 through 11. In fact, Beginning in Romans 9.1, there's an approach to one of the highest peaks of Paul's insight after a long climb that begins with Romans 9.1. A lot of people have stopped on certain precipices on the way up this climb, and they've made certain assumptions about God and election. They have come to conclusions because they have not walked all the way to the top. They haven't climbed all the way to the top. They've come to conclusions that God is capricious, that he elects some, for salvation, that he rejects others for damnation, that there is a double predestination. They take on a kind of distorted Calvinism. And there's many places where one is tempted to stop and conclude, but we don't conclude until we get to the peak of this mountain. And we're going to aim toward that a little bit today. He begins by asking, by quoting very bold Isaiah, who in verse 60, chapter 65, verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah, if you want to look where this is, but Romans 10, 20. But Isaiah comes out boldly and speaking for Yahweh, says, I was found by those who were not seeking me. I revealed myself to those who were not asking for me. I don't see a better picture of unconditional grace than this one. But to Israel, he says, he's talking about pagans in verse 20. To Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and defiant people. So Romans 11 opens with a rhetorical question, a series of them, really. I call it RQ for note takers, RQ1, rhetorical question one. I ask then, Paul says, God has not rejected his people, has he, based on this holding out his hands all day long to a disobedient people, if you want to jump and leap with the legs, the back legs of a ridge runner, we can leap all the way from Romans 10, 21, a disobedient people to Romans eleven thirty two, where it says God shuts up everybody in disobedience in order to have mercy on all. There's only one group of people that God promises to take out the stony heart and put a new heart in, and that's people with stony hearts. So we're going to see how this works out. 
I ask then, rhetorical question one, God has not rejected his people, has he? To which I also reply, most certainly not. Here Paul spends one of his very precious meganoitos. He has 13 of them in his epistles. He spends one here. That means if he spends it, then he considers this thought to be very expensive, very precious. Meganoito. Of course not. That's impossible. And then verse 2, he answers emphatically. He says, well, let's stay with one because I just want to pick up a few things. Very, we'll just skim the surface here. And, to which I also reply, most certainly not. For I myself am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, tribe of Benjamin. According to rabbinical tradition, Benjamin was the first tribe into the opened Red Sea, the first to experience the divine act of deliverance that no one could ever have done. No human being could ever have done this. God has enacted an act that no human being could ever enact, even if we were to give mankind a million more years to evolve. There's never would be a time when everyone, anyone would even think of the cross as the solution for the human and creational dilemma. I myself am an Israelite. Paul is basically saying, if God saved me, I think he might, Romans eleven twenty six. if you want to take another stag leap, save all of Israel. Talk about a defiant and disobedient person, someone persecuting the very community of the God of Israel. And how did Paul get saved? Well, he heard an evangelist. He said the sinner's prayer. He went down the aisle. He was sorry for all his sins. No. He met someone on the road to Damascus who said, Hello, Paul. My name is Jesus the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. And that day was the conversion of Paul. It was an unconditional confrontation it was a bowling over of the most defiant and disobedient of all the Israelites by the unconditional and irresistible invasion of divine grace which eventually is going to roll over all of Israel and take in all of Israel as we've seen God has not rejected his people says verse 2 whom he previously chose Rhetorical question two. This is, a, this is a twofold rhetorical question. Are, are you not aware of what the scripture says in the narrative about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have murdered your prophets. They have torn down your altars. I myself alone am left remaining, and they are seeking to kill me too. First Kings nineteen ten and 14. But what? Was the divine response to him? Rhetorical question to be. God says, I have on reserve for myself 7,000 men who have not bent the knee to Baal, Baal. And we've shown that this 7,000 remnant is a prolepsis or an anticipation of the salvation of all of Israel. That God has reserved 7,000 is the indicator that all will be saved. We've shown that in the past. I'm not going to reiterate all of how we got there. In the same way, Paul says, there is a remnant at the present time, chosen 
by grace. Now, if it's grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. We could even say grace would no longer be what it is, which is unconditional and without condition. We're talking about a covenant, a unilateral covenant that's mediated by one mediator, Jesus Christ, not talking about a contract with stipulations placed on sinful human beings to be saved from their sins. We're talking about a unconditional grace. If you were to seek this God by works, you'd never find him. But he finds you when you're not even looking for him because he finds you by grace. He reveals himself totally by grace. So sometimes we may be actively seeking God and we don't seem to find him. Then maybe we give up seeking him and there he is. So then, that's how we learn grace. Verse 7, rhetorical question 3, what then? Israel did not find what it was looking for, but the elect obtained it. The question is, what then? The answer is, Israel did not find what it was looking for, but the elect, that's an elect section of Israel. There was in Paul's day, like in Elijah's day, Paul, like Elijah, felt alone among his kin, among his kinsfolk, among his countrymen. But God also, as in Elijah's day, reserved a remnant. And as in Elijah's day, the remnant was reserved by God by pure, unadulterated grace. And as in Elijah's day, so in Paul's day, that election is a pivot or a fulcrum which turns the whole nation back to God. And so it is a prolepsis, an anticipation a 13 colonies that ends up being a 330-person nation. I think it was Alexis de Tocqueville that talked about this nation, America, when he, f- he came here in the late 1700s, and he looked over everything, and he checked out the social norms and the standards and the peoples of America, and he said something like, America is good because America is free. Now, there's something to that because, first of all, I don't agree, there is none good without God. But there is something in that because freedom ultimately is the power to do good. Freedom ultimately is the power to do good. And therefore, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom because the power to do good is only by the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is that goodness. The fruit of the Spirit is the ultimate good which is love. Ultimately, freedom, then, is not negatively conceived, although it is a freedom from sin, from the power of sin, from the power of death, from the power of Torah, from the power of principalities and powers. But ultimately, the positive side of that is freedom is the power to do divine good by the power of the Holy Spirit. But that's, that's the end of our deliverance. That's where we're going. That's where we are. If we continue in the word, then we'll be free. And Jesus relates that freedom as freedom of discipleship and as freedom from sin in, Roman, in John 8, 32 to 35. That's, I'm projecting out a little far where we're going, but so I won't, I won't do that anymore. Sorry. What then? Israel didn't find what it was looking for, but the elect obtained it. That's a gracious verb. The elect, that's a section of Israel, a part of Israel, obtained it. 
Like in Elijah's day, a remnant existed by pure grace. And that remnant was an anticipation of the salvation of all of Israel. Pas Israel. Again, that's taking a stag's leap all the way to 1126. And so, or and then, all Israel will be saved. Follow this now. So, Israel did not find what they're looking for, but the elect obtained it. The rest, the rest, toi loi poi. There's ekloge, the elect, and toi loi poi is the rest. The rest of Israel, he's talking about here, were hardened. Just as it stands written, God has given them. Who? God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear, even to this day. Now, because Paul wants to be thorough, he quotes first the Torah. Deuteronomy 29.3 is quoted here, 29.4. Second, he quotes Nebaim, which is the prophets. Isaiah 29.10 is here in these, these verses. And then he adds the Psalms on top of that. He says, moreover, David says... And David on his deathbed, as we said this week, the greatest thing to David was not his conquest or his defeat of Goliath. And last night, Goliath wasn't defeated. He won. If you're going to be, if you're not a boxer, here's a, here is, here's a piece of wisdom for you. If you're not a boxer, don't box a boxer. All right. But if you're David and you got five smooth stones, you can take down Goliath. But David wasn't excited. He didn't say, when I look back over my life, I remember killing Goliath. It was awesome. I remember the applause of the women who sang about me and said, David has slain his ten thousands, even though Saul, yes, slew his thousands. He didn't think about all of the things he accomplished as king in uniting Judah and Israel, the two halves of Israel. He said, the spirit of the Lord has spoken by my mouth. That was the sum total of what made him rejoice. The spirit has spoken by my mouth. The spirit of Yahweh has spoken by me. And David is one of the things the spirit of Yahweh said through David is this, let their table. And we said table this week. Trapeza is the whole system of liturgy and Worship that the Jews experience. That very table becomes a snare. Three things. A snare, that's a snare for birds. A net, that's a trap for animals. And a means of punishment to them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see. And their backs, listen to this phrase, be continually bent over. Now, there is a misleading and corrupt translation that takes for continually forever. It says forever. That is a corrupt translation. That is a misleading translation because God did not decree the forever bent down backs of Israel. He was speaking about a temporary situation in which Israel would be bent under the burden of Torah, a burden of slavery, just as she was in Israel under Pharaoh and had to be divinely exited by an act of God, by acts of God, by the blood on the doorpost and the opening of the Red Sea. 
by the first and second divine missions, as it were, in, in terms of representation. So, God is not forever. It doesn't say forever. It says continually. And that, again, is from the Psalms. Psalm, so we have Torah, Deuteronomy 29.4, the prophets, Isaiah 29.10, the Psalms, 69.22-23, but what he quotes here is from the Septuagint of the Psalms, so it's 68, 23, and 24, a maddening thing always. It's vital to understand that when David speaks here, he is relating a divine oracle. Just like Elijah heard, I have on reserve for me 7,000 andras men, as if it's an army, who have not genuflected to Baal. Baal was the state-sponsored idol god and DOJ, Department of Justice Enforced, under Jezebel, a false worship. And these had not bowed the knee. What God was saying was, I did not just, hey, I have 7,000 people on my side. He was saying, I have 7,000 as a foreview of the salvation of all of Israel. So don't make a plea against Israel, which he did. He pled... When he made a plea against God, it was kind of a legal plea. They've killed, they've butchered your prophets. Now, what else? What's worse than that except killing the Lord Jesus in 1 Thessalonians 2.14, which certain men were guilty of? What's worse? They've torn down your altars. I alone am left. You see, I'm a one-man pivot. I'm the only one. And they're seeking my life, too. So of all the things I just mentioned, the worst of all is they're seeking me. And he pled against Israel, says 11.2. So God pled for Israel, for all of Israel, in Romans 11.26, because that 7,000 remnant was an indication that God was going to use them as a fulcrum to turn national Israel back to himself, which happened, incidentally. It happened. And it will happen again only in a much more dramatic and glorious fashion. So, it's vital to understand that David was speaking an oracle of God. A divine decree. That God of Israel decreed that Israel be caused to be in disobedience and disbelief. He decreed it. If you want to take a stag's leap, that's so that he could have mercy on them, not so that he could damn them to hell, so that he could have mercy on them. He took the Gentiles, the pagans, and lumped them into one section of the maximum security prison. He took Israel and all of her times in another section of the maximum security prison only so that he could let everybody go through mercy. That's the point that we're aiming at. That's the height that we're running on. From that height, we can see a universal horizon, a horizon of universal redemption through the cross of Jesus Christ. Their table, then, is a metonymy or a figure of speech for the whole system of their piety by which they assume they're made righteous before God. That is a section of Israel did. They assumed it. But when Isaiah spoke in chapter 1, all the way back in chapter 1 of Isaiah, he says, 
Listen to me, you rulers of Sodom. And he was talking to the Jewish rulers of Jerusalem. Listen to me, you rulers of Sodom, equating Israel with Sodom, as John did in Revelation 11.8. Just picking up a few things here. And I recommend the messages from Wednesday and Thursday if you want to get more more fleshed out on this. The corrupt translation that their backs be bent over forever is actually reproved or reprimanded by the very next verse. Better call Paul to straighten out that mess. Romans 11, rhetorical question 4. So I, Paul, yes, Paul, we've called upon you. What do you say? I, Paul, say they have not tripped. The word in the Greek is tio, P-T-A-I-O. They have not tripped. That's tripped. In order to be destroyed, pipto, that means to fall and never get back up again, pipto. Two words here. See, when you read the Greek, you see this stuff. It pops. Ptio, they haven't tripped in order to fall down headlong and never get back up again. Have they? Again, the rhetorical question demands an emphatic no, of course not. He spends another precious meganoito, impossible. Perish the thought. So I, Paul, say... They have not tripped in order to be destroyed or fall down permanently, have they? And the way it is in the Greek, it's interesting. It's like a word play. It says they have an eptason in order to pesosin, have they? It's kind of like an alliterative thing here going on. They haven't tripped up in order to fall headlong, have they? The answer is absolutely not. Of course not. On the contrary, by their transgression, he likens their tripping or their stumbling to a transgression now, just like he did with Adam. By Adam's one transgression, all were condemned, but by Christ's one act of righteousness or obedience, all were given justifying life. All are given life. Similarly, here he reasons this way. By their transgression, that is, their stumbling not to be completely destroyed, salvation, that wonderful word, hesoteria, has come to the pagans. Salvation has come to the pagans to provoke Israel to jealousy. Now, does Paul literally mean that he's going to provoke Israel Israel to jealousy by the salvation of the pagans who didn't work for their salvation but just got it? Does he mean literally? I think there is a metonymy here. There's a figure of speech. There's a metaphorical way of speaking here. But I also believe that what he means is they're going to want what the pagans have. They're going to see that the pagans are like the workers that didn't work at all. They came in at the last hour of the day and got the same wages as those that labored in the field all day in Jesus' parable in Matthew 20, which is a parable of universal generosity of God toward all humankind, incidentally. Almost all the parables have a universal application to them because the the speaker of the parables happens to be the creator and redeemer of the universe. So he's speaking from a standpoint of a universal horizon. That he sees. 
So I don't understand how people can even leave that translation, their backs bent down forever. When the next verse, Paul says, does that mean that they've tripped in order to fall down forever? Absolutely not. How can you leave the translation bent down forever? When it means always or continually, and it means temporarily, ultimately, as we're going to see. So I, Paul, say... They have not tripped in order to fall down permanently, have they? Of course not. On the contrary, by their transgression, salvation has come to the pagans to provoke Israel to jealousy. So that's a stunning statement in itself. Salvation has come to the pagans. I like to include myself in the pagans because there will be a pagan pleroma someday when all the pagans come in through the gates, the ever-open, never-closed gates of the New Jerusalem, as John puts it, Symbolically in Revelation twenty one twenty six, But we're moving on. We're climbing, see? We're climbing, but we're getting closer to the peak here. And I'm going to aim at the peak. I'm going to toss the rope up and hook on to the top in the last part of this message. So I'm giving you, the Sunday folks, a little bit of a foreview of things to come. So... When the pagan Pleroma comes in, then all Israel will be saved, according to Romans 11, 25 and 26, and we're going there momentarily. Provoking Israel to jealousy, then, is a way of speaking to say that they will want what the Gentiles have, what the Gentiles have without asking or seeking. They have what Israel has sought and not found. Now, if you were to say to someone, I've been searching for this treasure all my life, how did you find it? And someone said, by not seeking for it. Would you say, I think I'll stop seeking for it? Or would you understand that this just fell into their laps by the grace of God? This was given to them by the grace of God, based on the crucifixion of the only mediator between God and man. Of course, you can't ever forget that. So Paul sees in the inclusion of the pagans by obvious signs and miracles in the Holy Spirit an inducement to his fellow Israelites to consider the gospel, which after all speaks to them first, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek in Romans 1.16. The influx of the Gentiles, in a manner of speaking, becomes a fulcrum, or we could say a pivot, a familiar term for us that have been in the ministry for a long time, a pivot for the turning of Israel. All of this is summed up in Jesus' words in Mark 10.30. Recall this now. He doesn't just simply say the first will be last and the last will be first. He says this, Mark 10.30, but many who are first. The first are the Jews. It's the Jew first, called first in history, Elected and chosen first by God. An election demonstrated by a divine act of deliverance that could only be divine. Prefaced by the slaughtering of a lamb and the placement of the blood of the lamb on the doorposts in Passover. Followed by an exodus out of Egypt, out of the enslaving prison house as it's called, through an opened sea which Pharaoh and his armies then tried to cross 
and it closed in on them. And I've said this week, that doesn't mean the eternal damnation of Egypt. How else does God say in Isaiah 19.25, eschatologically, further down the road, God says, Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, Israel, my inheritance. The ultimate salvation of Egypt, including Pharaoh, who for a moment in history was made a vessel of wrath Unto destruction. But the destruction was historical, not eschatological. Another point we made this week. That has to be fanned out in a book someday by somebody. So then, the influx of the Gentiles is a fulfillment of Jesus' words, but many who are first will be last. In other words, many of Israel, chosen first in history, will be last in the eschatological salvation. First, the pleroma, or the totality of the nations, comes in. Comes in where? Into Israel. Then, all Israel will be saved. Many who are first, not all, because there's a remnant, you see, that are already in. There's a remnant already in. But many... He says in Mark 10.30, once again, Jesus said it. And as usual, his words sum up a whole lot. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. He doesn't say many who are last. He said the last, meaning all the pagans together will be first. That means first in eschatological salvation, though they're last chosen in history by God. This fulfills that. So he doesn't say the first will be last and the last will be first. He said many who are the first will be the last and the last first. In Romans 11, 11, and 12, then there's an anticipation of Romans 11, 24 to 26a. So let's just look briefly at 11, 12. This is an unusual exegetical teaching for Sunday morning, 11, 12. But if they're misstep, he uses the word misstep this time, not transgression, misstep. He uses both words for, a, for Adam's sin also. If their misstep is bringing riches to the world, what are those riches? Material wealth? No. The inexhaustible riches that are in Messiah Jesus in Ephesians 3.18. The riches of God in God's glory in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 18. Their misstep is bringing riches to the world. As Romans 10, 12 says, God is rich to all who call upon him. And they're speaking here of the inexhaustible riches in Christ in Ephesians 3, 8. And their defeat, riches for the Gentiles, means messianic wealth for the pagans. Their defeat. This even speaks of the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Their defeat by the Romans. Their defeat means riches for the Gentiles. Here comes the a fortiori argument. How much more will their fullness, and the word here is pleroma, it means their totality. How much more will their fullness be? How much more if Israel is out of the picture partly, and that means wealth, the wealth of Messiah for the Gentiles, what will be their pleroma? In other words, he anticipates not only a pleroma or a total salvation for Gentiles, he anticipates a total salvation for the Jews, for Israel. 
here. Pleroma is a word that means totality. Paul anticipates the salvation of the Pleroma, or the totality of Israel, as he anticipates the entry into Israel, which John depicts as the New Jerusalem, according to Revelation 21-26, the totality of the pagans, what I like to call the pagan Pleroma. The two together equal the sum total of all the human race, and that's what we are aiming at, and this is what Hilaria Ramelli mentioned. This is what I call biblical math. We have Pleroma related to ethne, which is the Gentiles. Pleroma, fullness, P-L-E-R-O-M-A, ethne, E-T-H-N-E, where the unfortunate and stupid word heathen came from. Ethne, the Pleroma of the ethne, that's a salvific fullness of all the Gentiles. And then we have pas, a word that means all without exception, Israel, I-S-R-A-E-L, Israel, or Israel, Pas Israel, Pleroma, Ethne, all the nations, Pas plus Pas Israel equals the human race in toto, in its totality. Is Paul a universalist? Ask him. Better call Paul to find out. So the two together equal the sum totality of all the human race. We're going to go there in a minute. That pleroma is not just salvific or saving in a dry sense. Listen carefully and remember last week's message. But it means that Jesus, Yeshua or Yehoshua, whose name means Yahweh saves, comprises the totality of Israel and the pagans, and thus all of humanity. And as elsewhere taught by Paul, all of created reality in all of its times. Romans 8, 19 to 23, Ephesians 1, 10, 22 and 23, and 3, 10 and 11 suggest these things. This is the message of Paul that Irenaeus picked up, as we saw last week, in the second century A.D. This is the message picked up and carried by the patristic theologians from Origen to Ariogena, Ariogena, in the third to the eighth century. This is the message picked up, but misunderstood by many, by Anselm in the eleventh century. And that we, this is the message that we are picking up and carrying like a torch in the 21st century. It's about the marvelous work of God, as Psalm 118.23 says, the marvelous work of God. When I stand back and look at it, I say, I understand what the psalmist was talking about when he said, this is God's doing. And it's marvelous in our eyes. Why is it marvelous in our eyes? Because our eyes, once darkened, have been enlightened. This work of God, marvelous, wonderful, extraordinary, amazing, astonishing in our eyes, because our eyes see the extent 
Our eyes see the depth of the love of God in the crucified Messiah. Our eyes see the breadth of the love of God in a universal horizon of redemption. And it's marvelous in our eyes, as Paul proves in Romans eleven thirty-three to 36. Now, I bring up an old friend, A.T. Robertson, on Romans 11, word pictures on Pleroma. He says this, the word from Plerao, the verb, to fill, has a variety of senses. And then he says this, which really blew me away when I read it. It means that with which anything is filled And that which is filled. And so this means that all things will be filled with Jesus Christ himself. He has descended to the lower part, that is the earth, ascended to the highest heaven to reveal that he's going to fill up all things in heaven and earth with himself. He's going to comprise all created reality and there is a sense Glory be to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a sense where he already comprises all of reality. You say, even sinful people? He became sin, didn't he? This is God's doing. What is it? Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 1.30. I think he had in the back of his mind, there's nothing in the New Testament that isn't ultimately linked to the Old Testament except there's a couple of discontinuities in which there's a shocking new revelation. But the Old Testament, I think Paul had this in mind when he said, this is God's doing. It is God's doing who has made Christ to be for us sanctification. Christ for us sanctification. Christ for us righteousness or deliverance. Christ for us wisdom. Christ for us redemption. It's God's doing. That he made Christ everything for us. And I say to that, it is God's doing. It's marvelous in my eyes. Because my eyes were blind, but now they see. But I say this, they don't see everything yet. I don't claim to have any lock on any truth. I see only a modicum, a very small thing of what God wants us to yet see. We see almost Nothing compared to what we will see when we see him face to face and when we awake with his likeness in Psalm seventeen fifteen. So there's always more ahead. We're always going beyond. We must not make the mistake that denominations have made, that people in the past have made, that hundreds of millions of Christians have made throughout history, and that is to stop the climb. And say, well, we've hit this precipice. This is where it's all at right here. We can never do that. Never do that. So let's jump. Let's take our stag's legs or our, actually it means a doe here. So a doe running too. Let's take our deer legs and go to Romans eleven twenty four to 25. Because Paul is talking about a pleroma here in verse 12. And he's aiming, he's throwing the line and hooking on to this mountain peak. When he gets to the top of the mountain peak, incidentally, he jumps around and celebrates. And his celebration starts in 1133 and goes to 36. It's called 
doxology. Oh, the depth of the wisdom, the saving wisdom of God is what he means. His ways are past finding out. Who could have counseled him? In other words, who would have ever thought of the cross? Nobody would have ever thought of the cross. Give man 10,000 more years, 10 million more years, 100 million more years of evolution if you want to. He'd still never think of this. He never think, and he could never garner the grace of God by works. He could never do it. So, and I'm not a believer in evolution. I'm just saying, if you want to be an evolutionary person, give man, because I, I could prove in history that we've actually gone backwards in a lot of ways. Technology doesn't mean we've advanced. In fact, technology has actually crippled the social ability of many people to even function with other human beings. And it's actually caused what is now even beginning to be a phrase among psychologists, a difficulty in adulting. That people cannot become adults where they have to deal with situations that involve real flesh and blood other people because of their addiction to whatever screen is in front of them. And it becomes almost impossible for them to become adults. These are the kind of people that go out and protest, and you ask them what they're protesting for, and they go, uh, I, I don't know, but somebody gave me $500 to carry a sign. And it's better than working. And that's where thousands of people, you see, it's actually now a phenomenon in life. So don't tell me we're getting better because of evolution. The only way to get better is to be transformed by the grace of The irresistible grace and power of God. All right. Just thought I'd drop that in. Romans 11, 24. I should have had time to turn there. For if you graced pagans were cut from your native wild tree. Now, what he's doing now is rebuking the Gentiles who think, well, the Jews fell so we could be brought in. And that's what I call elective elitist arrogance. So Paul turns from 11:17, especially up to here, to kind of reprove the Gentiles. You know what he's doing? He's striving for unity in Rome, in the church in Rome, because it's filled with Gentile believers, pagan believers, but now there's been a recent influx of Jewish believers coming back around the time Paul spoke, because in 49, if we know history, Claudius expelled the Jews, including many Jewish Christians, including Aquila and Priscilla, from Rome. That was providential, because Paul met Aquila and Priscilla, because they went to Corinth, and Paul met them there, and they, uh, they became dear friends, as we'll see in Romans 16 someday. But the Claudian expulsion was repealed, it's a word we see here a lot lately. Repealed and then replaced by an edict that the Jews could come back. And that included a lot of Jewish Christians coming back, some of whom were still hooked on Jewish scrupulous practices. And the strong were the Gentile Christians who didn't have to deal with all that stuff. And the weak were the Jewish Christians who still had those, those scruples. And there was a terrific rift between them. So Paul's trying to promote Unity here in the body of Christ between Jews and Gentiles. But he says, so he says in doing this, for you graced pagans were cut off from your native wild tree. And against nature, 
Grace is always against nature. Into a cultivated olive tree. You were grafted into a cultivated olive tree. That's Israel. How much more, a fortiori again, will these, the natural branches, that's the hardened part of Israel, because Israel was hardened, the rest were hardened. He goes on to explain the hardening process is temporary and partial. Part of Israel was hardened, viscatosis or blindness and obduracy and stubbornness. God did it. Until, that means it's temporary, part were hardened, temporary, until, until what? Until the pleroma of the nations comes in, the pleroma of the pagans comes in. Then all Israel will be saved. God slam dunks the whole thing right there. Here it is. If you graced pagans, were cut off from your native wild tree and grafted against nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, which is the hardened part of Israel that was broken off temporarily in history, be grafted into their own olive tree? For it is my fervent desire, brothers, and I love this part, this is pastoral, so that you will not be conceited. That's ignorance, or arrogance, rather. It's what is what I call, it's the conceit of elective elitist arrogance. I, is my fervent desire, brothers and sisters, so that none of you will be conceited, and that you not be ignorant. Ignorance and arrogance go splendidly together. The arrogant are always ignorant. They're always blind. They always have a moat in their own eye. They always have a log in their own eye as they go around trying to pull the moats out of other people's eyes. There's a lot of Christian stuff like that, so-called Christian stuff like that. On the other hand, we have unspeakable blasphemies coming through the TV tube because the shocking things that are, they're portraying against our Lord Jesus Christ now are desensitizing this population to blasphemy. It's already been desensitized to so many other things, to violence. Now, the next step is to desensitize our society to horrific, depraved blasphemies against our Lord Jesus Christ. They are to, they're actually doing that to make a society ready for totalitarian takeover. And it's, it's going to happen. Unless this message overcomes a lot of that stuff. And that's not just because I'm preaching it, but it's, it's, I'm getting reports that this message is popping up everywhere and it has nothing to do with people getting on tetelestai.org. It has everything to do with the Holy Spirit, what he's doing everywhere. Including among the Islamic peoples. Imagine the, the shock of Paul saying the pagans are coming in would be the same thing as if we were saying the Muslims are coming in or ISIS is coming in to salvation. The same shock value happened back then. 
all the Sikhs are coming, all the Shintoists are coming, all the Buddhists are coming, all the Hindus are coming in. Why? Because they decided to select Christianity as their religious preference over Hinduism as their religious preference? No, because of the irresistible invasion of the grace of God that reveals himself to people who aren't looking for him or are looking for him in all the wrong places. Sorry for the preaching. Let's finish. You grace pagans were cut off from your native wild, you wild people like Galatians, you wild Irish people who produce people like McGregor who think you can box a boxer and you're not a boxer and you're going to box a boxer and win. Wild. How much more will these, Israel, the natural branches that were broken off, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Paul is predicting here the eschatological salvation of all of Israel. As we said this week, God said, I will take out the stony heart among you. Who's he talking to? The elect? No. The elect have already had the stony heart taken out and a new heart placed in. So who's he talking to but those with the stony heart? The stony heart are those whom he hardened. It is those whom he hardened that he promises to take out their hard heart and put in a new heart. Who else is he promising that to in Ezekiel 30? Make that 26. 36, 26 and 27. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. Who's he promising to take out the stony heart? People with stony hearts. Who is hardened? The rest was hardened. Who is God going to save? The rest. Like he saved the elect. The prolepsis. So I love this. As this begins to, we're starting to get to the top of the mountain here. For it is my fervent desire, brothers, so that you will not be conceited, that you be not ignorant of this mystery. Ultimately, the mystery is God allowing his son to comprise all created reality in Ephesians 1.10. But here, part of it. Here's the mystery. A partial porosis or hardening. Partial. Notice that. Partial. A partial porosis has come to Israel until, not forever, but until the totality, the pleroma of the pagans have come in. To pleroma ton ethnon. Till the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And then verse 26a. Look at this. This is one of the peaks. Not the peak. But ultimately it's the penultimate peak. It's the peak just before the final peak. And so. Which we could also translate as. And then. We'll work this out on Wednesdays and Thursdays. All Israel will be saved. That's the rest who are hardened as well as the elect who are chosen. To pleromaton ethnon plus pas Israel equals the human race. So Paul isn't contradicting what he said in Romans 5. Through the transgression of one man, Adam, all were condemned. But through the righteous act of one man, Jesus Christ, all receive rectification in the form of the sharing of his own life. We share his life because he comprises us. And so in order to fan out last week's message, I'll close very quickly. Through Adam's transgression versus through Christ's act of obedience, 
we compare Israel's transgression and God's inclusion of the pagans. When Christ, who comprises the totality of the Gentiles and then all of Israel, when he comprises all the Gentiles and then all of Israel, he comprises or fills up with himself all created reality. This means the totality of the human race who are made alive in him, according to 1 Corinthians 15.22. For now there is prolepsis. That's you. That's me. That's us. People still struggling with sin. People still struggling with anxiety. People still struggling with all the things that humans struggle with. Only people who are in Christ, people who have the Spirit, people who walk in the Spirit and crucify the flesh with its passions and ambitions, its self-destructive mechanisms. For now, there is the prolepsis, the election of Israelites by pure, unconditional, and irresistible grace, and the election of Gentiles by the same grace and through the same fidelity of Messiah. In Ephesians 2.8, you, pagans in Laodicea and Ephesus, are saved by grace and through fidelity that's not of yourself. It's Messiah's fidelity and not of works, lest anyone should boast. Anyone, Jew or Greek, should boast. The prolepsis, then, is a messianic community of Jews and Gentiles, the body of Christ, who are comprised of Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 12, Colossians 3, 4, which says, when Christ, who is your life, that is, who comprises you, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Why? Because Christ is your life. When he appears, you appear because he comprises you. So you along with others, are a living, corporate, human anticipation. We could call it a living epistle, but it's a living, corporate, human anticipation of the universal recapitulation in Christ of all created reality so that God will be all in all. Thank you, Father, for giving us dear legs that we might walk on these high places without arrogance and without ignorance, and that we can sure-footedly walk upon them and not fear falling. For from these heights you have desired to show us a horizon that stretches forth from the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and impacts all of created reality. We pray, Father, you, the God of hope, will in fact give us hope and intensify our hope because our desire is what the... that the eyes that we see with would be given to everybody. We want the eyes that are enlightened to be everybody's eyes. We want this for everybody. We're not a closed, enchanted village. We are a people who desire this message to be known by all, this hope to be had by all. And so we ask, Father, that you'll allow these things, the intensification and the contagion of hope to occur through us. We ask it in Christ's name.